Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Real Insider News, where you get behind-the-scenes updates directly from the people behind the film and TV production industry. I'm Brandon Hamill. And I'm Jeff Hamill. Today, we're going to discuss the career of comedy legend Carl Reiner, who sadly passed this week, how Sony has been giving a helping hand, the state of AMC and Regal Cinemas, some new shows coming to streaming services, and an update on how Georgia is handling everything. Then we're going to interview key grip Eric Boyle in order to discuss his career from L.A. to Boston. Today's Real Insider News segment is brought to you by ATM Services of Massachusetts, providing your customers access to cash that will increase impulse spending and cash purchases. Save your company or business from those hefty credit card fees with your own ATM. For more info, call or text Nick at 978-877-9801 or email nick.atmservices at gmail.com. First bit of news today is sad. Carl Reiner, dead at 98. Reiner had earned numerous Emmy Awards, including five for the Dick Van Dyke Show. He won also a Grammy Award for Best Comedy uh, comedy Album in 1999. And his first two Emmys were for Outstanding Supporting Actor for his role on the Caesars Hour. So for the Dick, Dick Van Dyke Show, he actually created it, wrote it, and directed it. And it ran from 1961 to 1966. And also, in 1967, he won an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Variety Series for the Sid Caesar's Emojine Coca, a Carl Reiner special. And in 1995, he took home the Emmy for Guest Actor in the Comedy Series for his appearance on Mad About You. And in, in his personal life, he was married nearly 65 years, had three children, Rob, Annie, and Lucas, as well as six grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. So, I mean, he was uh, successful in his both his career life and in his personal life by the looks of things a bit of trivia according to imbd the series originally was to focus on rob at the office with sally rogers as the lead female character and laura as the minor one the character of laura became so popular that mary tyler moore became the lead female character and more of the focus of the show shifted to the relationship between rob and laura Many times, situations at the office were still focused on Rob and Laura. This put a strain on the relationship between Rosemarie and Mary Tyler Moore, and while the two ladies got along well, they never became close friends. So, The Dick Van Dyke Show is obviously a bit before my time, but it's still a household name within American audiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that show and the impact it had on American TV? I mean, it was one of the first regular comedies uh, that I can remember, uh, watching it in black and white, uh, very clean, very different era. You know, right. they, if they showed them in, a, in the bedroom, they both slept in separate twin beds, spaced apart. Very wholesome. Very wholesome. You know, there was no foul language. It was all clean and pretty much related to, uh, you know, the lifestyle and the times. Uh, that it was on the air, hmm. and it still runs today. Really, still, it, it still airs today. Well, it's a shame that we have to say goodbye to a comedy legend, especially during such a <clears throat> tumultuous year. But 
98 isn't bad. And uh, did he die from COVID-related complications or? I don't believe so. It doesn't really say, uh, you know, the TMZ reported uh, that he passed away at his Beverly Hill Homes on June 29th. He was reportedly surrounded by his family at the time of his death. So, and his career spanned nearly 70 years. So he had a good run. Well, yeah, I, um, that sounds like it wasn't illness related, which is great. And it's a shame to see all of these great actors passing by us, but tis life. Sad, but true. In a bit of brighter news, in an effort to help in these trying times, Sony has developed a fund to assist containing the coronavirus around the world. The multimedia giant has donated over 8,000 masks to healthcare locations in New Jersey, California, and New York, and has been working in other initiatives to help medical professionals where they can. And I mean, that, that's, oh, sorry? That's definitely a selfless move, seeing that, you know, with the new guidelines for doing production for episodic movies, commercial, whatever, needing all the PPE, yet they were still generous enough and, and thoughtful enough to donate 8,000 masks to the frontline healthcare workers in those three states. That's, that's great. I mean, you could argue that it's them looking for their bottom line because, you know, as long as the corona is around, in, the industry is going to suffer. But I'm not that much of a cynic. And I really think it is wonderful to see a company that has gained so much from the general public. I mean, Sony is one of the largest multimedia production. I mean, not necessarily production, but they do do production, but there's multimedia companies in the world. So it's great to see some of that money come back to the, the audience base, you know, the people to help us out during these, these tough times. Absolutely. And other news, AMC has delayed their theater openings. Originally, they announced that they were going to reopen their theaters July 15th. Now, they've moved it to at least July 30th. And now that's all dependent on, you know, there's 31 states where it's spiking. So, I guess it all depends on where this goes in the next couple of weeks. Maybe they're going to delay it longer. Funnily enough, Regal Cinemas is also having a similar timetable, both in America and the UK. So it seems that by the end of July, early August, theaters should be back up and running. But it w- if that will be, you know, it's 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 too early to say whether or not that's going to be halted again by a secondary spike during the winter or anything like that. But let's hope for AMC and Regal's sake that they can come back online and start making some ticket sales so we don't have to say goodbye to some of our favorite movie theaters. I mean, in typical fashion, or in, in typical times, I should say, you know, talking about the winter would be not that unusual. But right to look that far ahead right now with the pandemic just seems so far away. It's a bit daunting. Exactly. In more media, or well, media production-related news, Ava DuVernay, director of many works, including the documentary The 13th, will be heading the series Colin in Black and White. The six-part miniseries will chronicle the high school years of Colin Kaepernick in order to examine how the national icon transformed himself into the activist he is today. Whether you love him or hate him, Colin Kaepernick at this point is certainly a household name, and ironically, it wasn't for his skills in football. As we all know, he was the man who kneeled during the national anthem and caused a large amount of discussion regarding police brutality in America back in 2016, which is still, and has been, very relevant to this day. So 
And Ava DuVernay is quite a powerhouse to be behind a uh, a series a series like this. I wouldn't expect a drama series or or some sort of dramatization of Colin Kaepernick. I, I never would have thought of that, but that could be interesting to see how someone you know that someone's formative years have affected them so much to kind of alter the course of their career entirely i mean it certainly it certainly never would it certainly would never have happened or less likely in a different time where the all these protests weren't going on i mean yeah. su- suddenly there's a lot of interest in his uh availability for being a quarterback and i think that the his his career and the way that his activism has affected it is emblematic of social media and the age of information. I don't think that it would have necessarily went the same way, let's say, 30 years ago. So it's definitely an interesting case, and um, it, it's probably going to be a great show. Ava DuVernay is, a, as I said, a powerhouse. The 13th is a fantastic documentary. I've still to check out her other works, but um, yeah, that's, so if you're interested in that, that will be heading to Netflix sometime within the next year or so. And strangely, in other football-related media, Tom Brady and LeBron James are the minds behind the new Apple TV series, The Greatness Code, which will include interviews with athletes discussing their career's defining moments. So if you're feeling a bit starved for some sports action, it seems like LeBron and Brady are here to give you a bit of a boost. It's funny that these two uh, shows are kind of being announced side by side, where one is and sport like an athlete kind of discussing a much more introspective look at themselves and their in their position in society and then you got tom brady and lebron james talking about how great they are <laughs> in another show so uh, i'm sure that uh that show's definitely going to get some traction yeah. because uh i'm not much of a sports person myself but i i know that sports fans are definitely hurting with along with everybody during our time it seems to me the theme there is enough about me let's talk about you what do you think of me? <laughs> I mean, come on. Tom was a uh, New England Patriot for 20 years, and now he wants to talk about how great he is? Man, it's still hard to believe that he's no longer going to be with the Pats, but... You know, Cam Newton, s- baby. Cam Newton. I, I guess Cam Newton's coming in, yeah. Like I said, I'm not much of a sports guy. I hope that doesn't burn any bridges for me, but apparently that's a big deal, so... Well, but. you know... <laughs> <laughs> Coming from somebody that that dissed Tom in the house that Tom built, the house that Tom built. Okay, I like that phrasing. Well, I, I was at Gillette Stadium. We were doing a corporate piece, and we were using a room, training room, off the visitors' locker room. So I had done some pre-lighting in there, and then we went out to the field to do the main part of the of the piece, which was, it's, it's, it was a corporate piece. It wasn't really even a commercial. It was, uh, going to be used on social media and also at some trade shows. And I'm trying to think of who we had with us. We did have a Patriot, former Patriot. If his name comes to me, it's not really important to the story. Uh, but anyway, at some point, you know, I was asked by the producer to go back into the training room, finish lighting it so that we could do the last scene. So I get to that room and the door's closed. So I radio the, the producer and said, Hey, you know, I know what's going on, but this door is now closed. And he said, did you knock? And I said, uh, I did not. He said, well, we're supposed to have that room 
you know, knock, knock on the door. So I knock on the door and the door opens like a couple of inches and I could barely see the face looking at me. And the guy shooed me away and closed the door and locked it. So uh, at that point, one of my crew members had come in and we kind of just sat down in the locker room and uh, I radioed the producer and he said, yeah, they're on their way in. So meanwhile, I said to uh, Andy, who was my crew guy, one of them, I said, hey, did you see that game against Buffalo? Brady looked terrible. He looked like a giraffe in the pocket. <laughs> the door opens. Out steps Tom Brady. Oh, my God. So he's, I'm sitting across near the room, and he's staring at me. I look at him. I say, hey, Tom. Pause. Awkward pause. Hey, he says. Then turns around, goes back in the room, and shuts the door and locks it. <laughs> well, I guess we know why he left the Pats. <laughs> oh, well, God. you know, I was just giving uh, an honest... <laughs> <laughs> You're giving your commentary. Not no, I had no idea Tom was in the building. Uh, God, but, my heart would have stopped. But I must say, his play improved tremendously. <laughs> over the rest of the season. Uh, so I'd like to think that uh, I was the reason they made it to the Super Bowl. You're kind of like a co-coach. You know, <laughs> someone has to give the hard truth. <laughs> oh my God. Speaking of the hard truth, let's talk about how the state of Georgia... And the Savannah region uh, in particular um, saw some massive economic benefits from the film industry in 2019, somewhere around $260 million that came into the state. Uh, now, they are taking a look at the incentive every once in a while. All, you know, all the states that have production do this. And the trouble with it is once they question the film incentive, now, this may not happen in Georgia because they have all kinds of studios, and I don't think everybody's going to pull out. But in Massachusetts, for example, anytime the governor, whoever that may be at the time, talks about questioning the film incentive, boy, production just dries up. Because what production is going to come into a state that has a tax incentive start production when the tax incentive is in question? Yeah. So this Charles Bowen, he's the founder of Savannah Film Alliance. Uh, you know, he says in addition to the state tax incentives, local incentives through the SEDA help sweeten the deal to draw in big projects. And, you know, he, he makes it clear that that doesn't mean there's not oversight when it comes to qualifications. Savannah made, you know, certain from day one to have very stringent oversight. And there's not one single claim, according to Charles Bowen, that's not meticulously checked and vetted to make sure, certain it's legitimate. So I think they're in good standing right now to show that the economic advantage of the tax incentives in Georgia will continue to drive the, some of the economics uh, of the state. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it would. As you said, the tax incentives are a huge deciding factor in what states are hotspots for film production, so... Let's hope that uh, 
everything goes smoothly as the industry kind of gets back on its feet in order to get the jumpstart we're all looking for. Correct. So, now that we've reached the end of our news segment, let's see what key grip Eric Boyle has to say about how things have been going. And as a special treat... For today's mid-episode segue, we will actually be using some music from the guest himself's band, Mantis. Check this out. Today we are joined by key grip Eric Boyle, who has worked in the industry for 29 years, from L.A. to Boston. Eric has worked on films such as Amistad, Meet Joe Black, Me, Myself, and Irene, Fever Pitch, and many others over the years. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, Eric, thank you for joining us today on uh, Real Insider News. So the last uh, three episodes or so, we've been focusing on post-pandemic production. But today, I think we should give the... uh, the listeners of uh, maybe pivot a little bit, a little freshness and get away from that, all that bad talk about the pandemic and uh, talk about something else. For example, you were a drummer in a rock band. Yes, I was. I uh, did rock and roll professionally for about 10 years. And uh, one of the uh, bands, Mantis, was uh, lucky enough to get New York management and put us as an opener with Kiss and L.A. Guns and Bad Company and Extreme. So, yeah, I got to play on some big stages and uh, make a lot of noise. It was fun. That's awesome. Tell us about opening for Kiss, for example. What year and where? Oh, boy. Kiss was, I think that was summer. uh, Well, I know it was July 4th. It was a 4th of July festival in Keene, New Hampshire uh, with L.A. Guns and Kiss and Mantis and a few other bands. Uh, July 4th, I think that was 1986 or 1987. So, you know, 20,000 people, outdoor festival, and Kiss was unmasked at the time, so no makeup. Wow. I didn't know that. So what was it like meeting Gene Simmons? Did you did you meet the band, I'm assuming? Uh, yeah, we met the band. We had dinner with the band and bowling with the band the band does a lot of group activities with other bands and they like to include the openers uh with you know like dinners and things where everybody sits at the one big table together Uh, yeah pretty cool pretty uh pretty um small like entourage you know we're 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 four people person band they were four person band i think they may have had two or three other people with them you know, we may have had six or eight, you know, a little team building. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was it true that Gene Simmons walked around giving out chocolate chip cookies? Uh, well, you know, we were at a dinner one night and he wanted cookies. We were at a, a the hotel <laughs> restaurant and they did. The waitress said, got flustered. And so we don't have we, we don't have any cookies. So so Gene got up and went in the kitchen and talked to the chef and. You know, within a half an hour, the chef comes out with a plate of cookies and Gene takes the plate and walks around the table and offers everyone a cookie, you know, except for the the one, the limo driver kid wanted a cookie and and Gene really didn't want to give him one. So he said, well, 
here, let, let me spit on it first. <laughs> so, you know, that was a, a, a shocking Gene Simmons moment. Was he serious or was he just kind of... You, you know, it probably wasn't. So you know how he is. He's got a straight look, but he was trying to be funny. So he didn't actually do it, but, it, you know, it was just the... Uh, the rock star thing to do at the time, I guess. I mean, how big was Kiss? I, you know, I don't. How big were they in '86? If they weren't doing makeup yet, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, this was post makeup, so they right. did a series of tours where they went unmasked, so people would know who they were and you could see them. Um, they were still big. The album, I think, "Lick It Up," had already come out with unmasked. That was like the first one. The tour we were doing, I forget what album it was. I think they did two or three tours that way and then came back out with the makeup and the fire and all of that. So uh, they were still big. I don't know that their popularity ever dwindled, you know. I mean, I wasn't there's, there's still a household name. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't saying that to uh, take away from, you know, you opening for Mantis. I just I don't know the really the history of Kiss. And, and so did they start with makeup and then went on mask and went back to makeup? Exactly. Yeah, the whole beginning of it was all the makeup stuff, and nobody knew who they were for, I don't know, I'm not a big fan myself, um, but I believe, you know, 20 or 30 years they did, or maybe, you know, 25 years with makeup, nobody knew who they were, so they could come and go and not be known. And then they, for some reason, decided to do unmasked. Maybe they thought it would make them bigger, you know. Or would do something different. I'm not sure what the that would have been a good question to ask Gene. Um, but the, the, you know, I, I would say during the unmasked portion of their career was their lower. You know, they sold less tickets when they I'm put the decline. makeup back on. They they were selling out big arenas again. So when is Mantis getting back together? Well, geez, we're we're we could do a 35 year anniversary. I. I see my uh, singer guitarist every now and then. He works nearby here, and I've talked to the lead guitarist, and he says he's got all the equipment in the basement ready to go. I just haven't found the bass player yet. Can't find him. Don't know where he is. If he doesn't do it, I won't do it. Oh, really? Yeah, he's, he was my, like, you know, we were tight. We were like brothers, him and I. So for the listeners out there, if you happen to run into the bass player for Mantis, please email us at realinsidernews at gmail.com so we can get this band back together. <laughs> yes, Bill Duty, where are you? Bill Duty, step up. So um, shifting gears a little bit back to video, uh, well, TV and film production, I'm going to ask a question that is on all the listeners' minds at the moment. And what is the biggest difference between working in L.A. and, say, a place like Boston? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I did so much here. Um, working in L.A., well, you know, everything's on every street corner. It's real easy to do this and do that as far as equipment and and crew. You can, you can get a crew, the whole crew today for tomorrow. There's thousands of grips, thousands of electrics just, you know, ready to go. Uh, I mean, some of the production areas are harder to shoot in, like shooting in L.A., forget it. It's just too expensive, the permitting and the, the hoops you had to jump through. I'm sure, sure now it's worse. 
So a lot of the shooting we did was outside of Orange County where there's no permitting. Huh. Now, if I, if I recall, in the past, you and I have had a, a conversation where you're doing a night shoot and gunfire broke out. Oh, yes. We were uh, we was on the movie, the horror movie Phantasm 3, kind of sci-fi horror. We were shooting in a graveyard in South Central Los Angeles for two weeks at night in the graveyard. Well, apparently we're, you know... Uh, younger kids that had been murdered in the, the area and we were using the graves and the site and people in the neighborhood weren't happy. Ah. So uh, apparently they got upset one night and you just heard a car engine rev up and pop, 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 pop. And a car took off and we all dove in the ground and you know, nobody got hit. Nobody got hurt. Uh, but yeah, it was a basic drive by shooting. I mean, was the movie respecting the graveyard or desecrating it? I mean, uh, neither really. There wasn't extra respect paid, but we weren't disrespectful. They had, they had someone had come by the night before and complained about our lights shining in their yards and things like that. The things that we did to graves and whatnot were plant graves. We put them there. They were ours. It was so just empty lots. Plots, um, empty plots. Exactly. And the others that were theirs were more background. I see. Films shoot at that location often. We had to wait three days to get in because uh, what's the Hot Shots Part Do was shooting there. So we kind of rolled in with them and helped them get out as we got in. So it's very common to shoot there. So I would say people get upset really easy. I guess it's probably more the bright lights shining in their windows all night long. Yeah, as you know, that's not fun. It is not. <laughs> that's an aspect of film production I've never uh, considered, the fact that you might have friction with the local populace. Yeah, that's oh, a, yeah. that can be a really big problem. We, we've always been told to try to, you know, keep it, you know, keep friendly with the locals. When they ask what you're doing, tell them. Don't tell them always that it's a mayonnaise commercial. <laughs> we'll have to explain that off the uh, podcast sometime to uh to brandon uh <laughs> so i know uh, again eric and i uh, you and i eric i know we've we've talked about this before uh tell the listeners who you hung around with growing up oh yes i grew up with uh, adam sandler which is you know weird i mean it's it's weird when you think about it but when when you know, if you think of a big star, huh, that would be weird growing up with them. But when they're nobody or they're young kids, they're they're like everybody else. We had a lot of fun. He was a he was a fun kid to be around when we were younger. You know, no trouble. Very very funny. Maybe not the funniest kid I grew up with, but he had the nerve to get up and do it in front of. So he wasn't the class clown then. He was just the brave one. Yeah, that, that's how I remember it anyway. He was a musician, so he sang in a rival band with one of my bands, and we're all friends with all of his bands, and we did like a battle of the bands together. They played, and we played, and it, it was cool. We were did really anybody, cool. Anybody capture that on any kind of recording? Oh, boy, I wish. No, nobody did. Not even photographs. That would be good. You know, that was at my high school. Trinity High School had a, a coffee house slash battle of the bands, and Half of 
their band went to my school anyway. So it was like two bands from mostly the same school. And uh, yeah, it was friendly competition. Have you ever worked on any of Sandler's films? Uh, yes, I worked on three. I worked on Grown Ups 1 and 2. Oh, wow. And what's the other one? It changed name so many times. That's my boy. I worked on on that one as well with you know, Ice Cube or no Ice Vanilla Ice was in that one. That was <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> so did you like working on the Sandler Productions? Man, you've really seen this kid go from you know just any other kid to the movies that we know him today. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it, it has been fun to watch. You know when he. You first heard about him doing stand-up in New York, and then Bill Cosby caught wind of it and liked it, brought him onto his show as an extra. So he was just like uh, his locker was next to Cosby's son in the show, so they'd bump elbows and talk around the lockers every now and then. And then all of a sudden he got on SNL and then movies, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And to see him now and talk to him, all he wants to do is reminisce about when we were in the bands in high school and working at the ice cream shop. And he just likes <laughs> talking about old times, which I do too. So it's fun. Yeah. So a lot of the listeners won't know some of this stuff when, when you give us a little bit of, uh, I guess, childhood friends uh, whose names of characters ended up in the grown ups movies. Yeah, I mean, Adam likes to use real names and and uh, people and whatnot in his shows from, from childhood. I believe it's uh, his first movie, the uh, character named Bobby Boucher was, was a, a kid um, we went to middle school with. Huh. You know, Robert I know on, Boucher. I know on jobs you and I have worked on, you've made that, ref- you've called someone Bobby Boucher, and I didn't really know what that was referring to. there's a lot of inside stuff with Adam that, you know, uh, people don't understand or laugh at. It's funny, but they don't know just because unless you know who Bobby Boucher is, you just think it's a made up name, you know, and a a lot of his movies have real names from real people. We, we grew up with, and he's even put some of the people in the movies as extras. That's funny. Well, he seems like a man who's really close to his roots. He really is. He's, he's, he's grounded. His mom keeps him grounded. She still lives in the same house that he grew up in. And we, you know, it's the jam in the basement. He probably should be grounded. Yeah. If his, if his mom knew what we did as kids, we'd all be grounded. <laughs> Even to this day. Yeah. So going to a bit of a, a starker topic with COVID and all that, as we've been discussing on the podcast, we like to learn about how COVID has been impacting certain aspects of the industry or how you predict it, it will. So with social distancing in mind, how do you think grips are going to manage to put up large pieces of equipment that might take many hands in a safe and conscientious fashion? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a few of us have been talking about it and thinking about it. And, you know, my thoughts on it, you still will have to work as a team, probably a reduced crew. You'll have to have more time to do the work because there'll be less people. But, you know, my thoughts on it are clear the set for each department. When, you know, art department has to go in and do their work, 
everyone else clears out, let them do it. When the right. grips have to do, you know, clear the set, grips come in electric. That seems to me to to be the safest way. It's going to take more time. I mean, it seems, it, 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 you know, typically the grip and electric department work pretty hand in hand. So if the electrics come in and we set our lights, we have to, how is it, how are we going to leave the set so the grips can come in and set the flags? It's probably not going to be that way. It's probably going to be department heads. Yeah, department heads would have to stay on to, once the light gets set and the the electrics can walk away, maybe one third stays and the gaffer stays and you know the grips would come in and basically put everything around that light it shouldn't have to move again until they want to tweak so maybe right before you go the key grip or the and or the gaffer do the final tweak as opposed to other technicians send them away and just have the two department heads well at least cappy won't be on set to tell me how many lights i put up <laughs> I'll be counting. <laughs> It'll be a long time before you have 64 lights on the set again. And that was a tabletop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were shooting a pen. Was that a pen? No. Oh, no. I think that was uh, a toy. I don't want to say the name of the company, but I think that was a toy spot. And it was really, it was, it was a tabletop with a rear projection screen behind it for a background. But yeah, 65 lights. I believe me. Yeah, everybody counted. And and, and the question was, why do you keep setting up lights? And my answer was cuz that's what the DP said. <laughs> oh, I agree. I hear you. Put up another light, put up so many flags and people are like, "What are those flags doing?" I don't know. I just was told to put them up there, so I did. Right. <laughs> So like, on an average shoot that's or job or whatever, how many pieces of equipment do you think the grip department's dealing with, if you were to estimate? If you itemized every little piece of equipment? Does it, well, I, I guess the, the individual things you're setting up. Um, Flags and all know, that. A couple hundred could be, at least there'd be a couple hundred items on set ready to go. And if you only used a hundred or... So that might be, I mean, I, we've set things where, with stands where we've set 40 to 60 stands with, with equipment on those, um, you know, so as far as like flags and diffusion frames and whatnot, I don't see a lot of those size sets anymore, but I'm sure they're still out there on major motion pictures. It can, you can light, we've lit for eight hours without shooting anything. You light go to lunch, come back, finish lighting, and then start shooting. So that's, you know, thousands of piece of pieces of equipment sometimes. So how do you think people are going to manage cleaning all of that equipment in a COVID conscientious environment? Well, uh, another good question there. I, I would say um, you just each truck, those are 53-foot tractor trailers will – They'll have to add a couple guys at the end of the night to clean it when it goes back in the truck. That would be the easiest way. You know, once it's all out, wipe it down going back. And thinking about how you could light for eight hours without even shooting, in the guidelines for the Chicago uh, for Chicago shoots, in their official guidelines, it says that the set needs to be cleaned hourly. How do you think you could manage to work in an environment that's so stringent? 
Wow, I hadn't heard that one yet. So that would be the same thing where you you shut down. You have to shut the set down. People walk away. Cleaning crew comes in, cleans. And then when they leave, the shooters can come back in and shoot again. You know, I, I hadn't heard that. So I haven't put much thought into that. But yeah, that'll slow production down. But everything's going to slow it down now. Yeah. As long as the quote unquote new normal lasts. Right. I mean, you know, one of the, some of this technology I've seen around and heard about is UVC light. I mean, that might be one. I just read an article that it it almost instantly kills the the coronavirus. So, the, I mean, that might be one way is to have those pre-rigged in the studio. Everybody exits because you can't be in there. You need maybe a uh, you know a camera so you can see that they're they're on or whatever, right? And then we let them run for whatever time the scientists say. Shut them off. Go back in and, and continue. Um, you know. Meanwhile, the crew can go to their sanitizing stations. Uh, you know, they're going to have one of those helmets, those beer helmets. They're going to have sanitizer on one side and hand lotion on the other side because your hands are going to be like sandpaper. Yeah. Or, or, We'll put some easy ups up with hoses spraying chemicals on you and you walk through. What is <laughs> <laughs> wear hazmat or, suits? Are we going to wear hazmat suits? Right. When we're shooting, is that what we do? I don't know. But, you know, so with that being said, tell the newbies out there how you got started as a key grip in the business. Um, well, I was, uh, again, back to the band. I was in that band. And um, Mantis, right? Mantis, where I was in Mantis, still playing Mantis and playing in New York or Boston or wherever and trying to get that to happen. And, you know, we had lost our New York management at that point. I was managing the band, managing, oh, wow. writing, producing, playing the drums. And we put out an, another demo and we just didn't get the interest that we needed to get to get a record label and it was wearing me down a little. And I ran into the old manager who set us up with kiss and all that in a restaurant to say, Hey, how you doing? You know? And he's like, you still playing rock and roll? I said, Oh yeah, still doing it. And he said, anytime you want to get out of rock and roll and get in the film industry, come see me. I have a film and TV production company. Now that was Friday at noon, lunchtime, Monday morning. I knocked on his door, and Tuesday I was on the set working wow. the set. So it really happened quick. I saw an opportunity. I dove in and said, yeah, this is what I want to do. I'm, I got to move to L.A. and do it. So was it like – were your skills transferable because you were used to setting up the, you know, the, um, the, the stages to play and used to moving around all the musical equipment? So getting on a set was just kind of – like, you know, same same stuff, different ballpark? Uh, in my mind, that's how I looked at it. It's very similar. Drum sets and, and grip equipment are similar. C stands are like cymbal stands. You know, a lot of nuts and bolts, which is probably why I went in the grip department. Drumming, drumming equipment, grip equipment. So it seemed like a, a easy transition, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't all quite like that. It's it's a different world, very different world. Um, but, uh, you know, different pressures. You know, pressures of playing are one thing. Pressures of setting a flag on the set of a movie like Amistad in front of Steven Spielberg will 
get your blood flowing the first couple days. How how was how was Steven Spielberg on set? Like, what was his directing style like? Uh, low key, real low key, not a yeller, not a screamer. You know, real easy going, very pleasant. Really? Yeah. So, in terms of the crypt department, what are some things about being a grip that maybe a newcomer might not expect? Uh, you know, I mean, basic things like long days, you know, grip department, electric department are similar. They have a lot of gear to set up. They might have earlier calls. And when people call a wrap after 12 or 14 hours, you guys have two more hours to go. So long, long days are something I think people don't quite expect. Uh, and I'm not sure if the workload is something people understand. A 53-foot tractor trailer full of steel has to get unloaded, set up, taken down, reloaded, sometimes four times a day if you're shooting at four locations. So the workload, even for the 20-somethings, is a lot. The workload is, is tremendous. That was something I didn't expect to the point where I would work out and run, you know, two or three miles, four miles a day prior to starting a movie to, to you know, like you're an athlete. Very physical yeah physical job i remember so what was the movie celtics pride was that the one that was shot in boston years ago so for some reason i, I don't know how i ended up in the grip department and i remember approach i remember uh, uh remember approaching the truck in the morning and the key grip had already opened the the back and he's kind of sitting on the tailgate uh, the lift gate you know and i told him you know who i was and i was there as a grip and I asked a couple of questions. I don't remember exactly what they were, but he said, hey, those are good questions. Usually I get questions like, is this going to be a long day? And I, he, said, he says to me, I usually respond, no, no, we should be able to make this movie in a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, the next question usually follows up, when's lunch? Which none of those, neither of those questions I asked him. I asked him, I don't recall what it was, but... I bet, you know, that's something that, that, that sort of goes to what you were just saying that I already had some experience, you know, gripping an electric, you know, but if someone green had walked up, I could see them asking those kinds of questions. Sure. And, you know, I, I, I have answers for those too. At least one of them, is this going to be a long day? I would say, no, nah, it's half day, 12 <laughs> hours. <laughs> at least and you ask me another sleep you ask me another dumb question your day's over yeah i mean you know that's a half day right 12 hours <laughs> after that they don't ask dumb questions because again they know they're going to get some dumb answers but you know it is there's a big difference working episodic or movies or you know features versus a commercial uh the advantage of getting on a, a long-term feature or episodic uh, production is that it's like boot camp. I mean, you get in shape physically, but you get in shape mentally as well because you're doing it. You're rinsing and repeat, you know, uh, over and over and over and over, and you sort of get a muscle memory. So, you know, setting that light or setting that flag uh, becomes second nature. I think that, you know, it's like a training ground. I think that's the advantage of working on episodic and features, um, you know, at least starting out, if not... You know, there's there's guys we both know that that's all they do, and they are damn good at it. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, um, you know, you, you do those shows the first week, everyone's nervous, first day of school, that kind of feeling. And then after week two and you get into week three, everybody knows your name. You know everyone's name. Everybody knows the style they're looking for. The They start shooting itself by week three. You know, and that physical world, you're in shape. You feel better. You're not worn out. You're not tired until around week seven. And then it kind of goes back. You're overtired. But, yeah, you can get in the great physical shape and, um, you know, and you sharpen your skills. After one feature, doing that every day for three months, you're going to be good at it, really good at it. And then you'll go to a commercial and you'll do an eight or 10 hour day and you we're done. I think you're semi-retired. <laughs> what? what do I do with the rest of my day? We're not going for eight more hours. That's another one. When we break for lunch, if you want to get people, the young guys to really get upset or just nervous stomach is you sit down at lunch and you look at everyone and you go, Hey, only 12 more hours to go. <laughs> people push their food away they sit back from the table and just oh why'd you have to say that so speaking of that out of fil a feature episodic and commercial what's your favorite workload or like just like you know what, what's your favorite type of project to work on uh now i like the commercials i like the shorter job two or three days shorter days you know in and out in and out kind of thing, especially with sports where you're, you know, you're doing something with Tom Brady or somebody like that. You know, it's kind of fun. If you if you're into sports, you get to meet those people. And usually with athletes, you get them for an hour or two. So you go in and light for four hours. They do their hour or two thing. They leave you wrap and go home. You know, I guess I'm showing my age. A shorter day is better for me. Hey, that's hey, that's a perfectly fine answer, man. I I understand. Uh, I understand that sense of sentiment. Trust me. You mean you you want to work to live, not live to work? I mean, when I was younger, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I can't. I I hope we do a fourteen or sixteen hour day. You know, the overtime. Now it's like ten hours. I want to be out of here. I don't care how much you're gonna pay me. Yeah, <laughs> and they look at you like. What? I thought you guys just want to make all that kind of money. No, we just want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> 10 hours is enough for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but I will say this with movies, when you get on one and you follow along with the script and you know what you're shooting each day, it, it is kind of fun to watch the puzzle get put together or at least the pieces getting made that get put together later. Right. That is uh, very rewarding when you go to the movie theater and you sit in the chair and watch this movie that you, you know, spent three months on that. That's a reward for sure. Well, I can tell you my experience. I, I, I filled in, well, I didn't actually fill in. I, I was added to the first season of castle rock for three days. They were falling behind and the, uh, the gaffer called me in to work the set while he worked out on location. And I don't know if this was done because we were, I mean, you, you don't you shoot out of sequence. I mean, that's just normal. But when you get the paperwork, it might have been done for reasons. Uh, so the information didn't get out. You know, everybody's everybody's got a social media or something or other. But none, nothing that I read and saw made any sense to me. 
I had no idea what we were shooting until we were walking, doing the blocking and doing the walkthrough. Um, you know, then I would have to ask the DP, you know, are we matching something, uh, another scene that occurred, you know, in the same setup? Uh, is it sunny out? Is it overcast out? You know, tell me what you, you know, what you want. Um, so I couldn't really in those three days, because it was only three days, but in those three days, I couldn't tell you where in the movie. I mean, when I watched some of it, okay, I, I all right, I see where that is, but I didn't know I couldn't put that puzzle together in three days. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's how it was most of the time. But if I would on location, if you're in a hotel, you get back at a decent hour and you want to read something before you go to bed, I would read the script and find out where we were and follow along. So it is, then you do know what's going on. It makes the day more interesting. Right. So when we, when, when we did head above water, we actually shot that movie in order. We shot the first scene first and the second scene right in order. And and it's harder huh. to make a movie that way, but we did it and it was pretty cool. It was it was cool. So I um I got an email question here from Randy from Vermont. And Randy asks, How do you think the grip department is going to change over the next ten years? Hmm. Great question. Um, you know, judging by the last 10 and the 10 before that, and maybe the 10 before that, I would say smaller crews, especially with the current times, mm-hmm. smaller crews, equipment's getting lighter, smaller and easier. Um, as far as that, I would say not much will change um, because, you know, other than equipment size and, and volumes of crews, depending on the show, the process will be the same. You still have to go out there and shoot that movie and, and light that set. So I think the process will be there. The crew sizes and things will change. Block, light, shoot, right? Block, light, shoot. Wait, wait, let shoot, me write, let, shoot, shoot. I was going to say, let me write that down. <laughs> yeah, write that down. <laughs> Tell the producers, it's not shoot, shoot, shoot. It's block, light, shoot. Breaking news. Block, light, shoot. <laughs> So, th- we've already kind of touched upon this, but we'd like to ask this for all of the guests that come in, especially people who have been in the industry for so long. They've seen tons of tons of productions, tons of changes happen to the industry. If you were talking to somebody who's around my age, they want to enter, they want to become a grip, what is some advice you would give them? Don't, Don't. do it. <laughs> <laughs> Get a real job. <laughs> or if you're independently wealthy, you know. No, I mean, it, it's a tough business. If if you know what you're getting into going in, it's a tough business, but it's, it's rewarding. It's, um, you know, like I said, you're working with, with Steven Spielberg or Clint Eastwood or, or somebody like that, and, and you're watching and learning and just this is the biggest of, of the big. And I'm a part of it. You know, I'm, I'm helping this, this, I'm, I'm a piece of this puzzle, part of the crew. It's a good feeling. It's a lot of work and, and whatnot. And, you know, it's like being an athlete, you will age out. You can't do it forever, you know, but you know, have fun doing it. And if you love it, go for it. Hey, well, thank you so much for your time coming onto the show today and giving us the hard truth about some aspects of the business, because I feel like a lot of people are a little iffy about like, Oh, well, you know, the days can't be rough, but 
it seems like grips, you know, they, they work as hard as they look they're working. Yeah, we get the hard truth, so we give the hard truth. But I, <laughs> I, I did want to say one more thing about Adam Sandler when we were kids. Sure. I made a bet, I made a bet with him. I bet him $20 that he could not play the bass line in the Who song, My Generation, Note for Note. And so we went to his mom's house, and he pulled out a bass guitar. He was a lead guitarist, so he wasn't a bass player. He pulls out the bass guitar, and he does it. And his mom, of course, happened to be the judge. <laughs> so plays the song, and, and I was impressed. I could not believe he did it as well as he did it. I, I have to admit it. But it wasn't note for note. So he owes me 20 bucks. And With I interest. With interest. So, hey, Adam, if you see this, hear this, or whatever, I want my 20 bucks. And you can send that to drumjunkies.com. That's correct. Hey, thank you guys for having me on here. It was a blast. It's always fun talking about the good old days of film and rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today as we explore the pandemic's impact on the industry. You can find our show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Twitter at Real Insider News or email us questions at realinsidernews at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. You heard about how Eric Boyle played drums in the band Mantis and even opened for Kiss. Not entirely leaving his musical career behind, Eric now sells vintage drums on eBay. So make sure to check out Eric's Drum Junkie Shop at www.ebay.com backslash str backslash Drum Junkies Drum Shop. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>